the end of chapter 1 this evening. This is the birth of Jesus Christ, as the text says, although we'll see as we look at it that this isn't exactly the best way to understand this text, but we'll hold on to that for just a moment and come back to it. With the Word of God open, let's pray and ask for His Spirit to help us. Heavenly Father, we bless You for the promise of Your Spirit who comes to comfort us in our affliction and to help us in our weakness and to take up on the other end together with us in our prayers and to illumine our minds that we might understand Your Word. So we ask for Him now, we ask for a vision of Christ now, and we ask that we might hear Your voice now in Your Word as You have made and fulfilled all of Your promises to Your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the Word of God, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, please take heed how you hear it. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just, and, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. I wonder if you've had this experience. I have it often in the presence of my wife and with new friends that we're just meeting, you and your spouse or perhaps your significant other meet a new couple and you're chatting across the table, maybe at a new members class or a Clapham circle. And one of the first questions that they ask or that you'll ask of them is what? How did y'all meet? How did you meet? I already know that you're married or that you're dating or whatever. I want to know the background story. Tell me what happened. Where was it? Who fell over and helped the other one up? Who spilled spaghetti sauce all over their shirt? How did the story come about? And I know some of you are single or aren't yet old enough to be married or not in a relationship like that, but should the Lord in His kind providence provide you with a spouse, this will be a question you will be asked. So I suggest from the earliest moments of your relationship, you begin jotting down the notes of those events so you have a good story to tell. There's also something about the way that you tell the story that matters. And if you've been married for a time, you know that Mrs. tells the story differently than Mr. does. And sometimes that in itself is worth sitting down at a table and meeting a new couple, isn't it? But what's the point? We want to know the background story. We want to know the how, the highlights, the why. 
In other words, we want to know the origin story, don't we? Or we might say, we want to know about the genesis of your relationship. In fact, that's the word that's used in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. That word, birth there, is genesis, the genesis, the origin story of Jesus. It's the same word from last week in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. This whole opening chapter is giving us the eternal background story, the cosmic context of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the origin story. So strictly speaking, while it says the birth narrative, my Bible up here above verse 18 in bold print says the birth of Jesus Christ, and then I've got these uh, eight verses that take up the next section of text, but really the entire birth narrative is a little clause in verse 25 that says she had given birth to a son. That's the whole birth story right there. The rest of it's all background. Matthew wants us to know not that Jesus was born, but why Jesus was born. How did he get here? How did Mary and Joseph end up with him? And what's the point? What's the purpose of his coming, the cause of his birth, the reason he was sent into the world? And I think our text will answer these questions for us this evening. So let's together, as we look at this text over the coming minutes, Try to answer the question, where did Jesus come from and why? Where did Jesus come from and why? And I think there's three things in this text that will help us understand Jesus' origin story. Number one, if you're taking notes, his origin was divinely directed. Jesus' origin was divinely directed. Number two, his origin was prophetically promised. Jesus' origin was prophetically promised, and then lastly, we'll see that his origin is salvifically, you can figure out how to spell that on your own, significant. Jesus' origin is salvifically significant. Well, we begin with some relational background. We come to the text immediately. We know the genealogy. We know that through Joseph, by virtue of his legal adoption, Jesus is a son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes through these sets of uh, genealogies leading all the way up to the Christ. And we read this in verse 18. When Mary, his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, speaking of sexual intimacy, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So they're betrothed. That's a, a fancy word for engaged, although it means a lot more in the ancient Near Eastern context in which it's given. So betrothal in Jesus' day and age was as good as marriage. There was no getting out of it at this point. You were considered legally bound to one another in relationship. Uh, uh, that's why in verse 19 it tells us that Joseph, who in verse 18 is only betrothed, seeks to divorce her in verse 19. You see how it, how it interchanges those concepts. We tend to think of an engagement and then a wedding ceremony as the official moment, and which ends immediately in the consummation of the marriage, after which divorce is the only, or death is the only recourse for breaking the relationship. But in this case, the betrothal is enough. He's legally bound to her and her to him. 
Uh, a man in this context would have uh, paid a bride price already, and the families would have arranged the uh, details of the ceremony and celebration, and all of the working out of the relationship would have been done. It's a done deal. Um, in the eyes of Joseph, in the eyes of Mary, in the eyes of his family, should he have had one, her family, we assume he, she had one, and everyone else. And since it appeared that she had been unfaithful, Joseph decided to divorce her, it tells us in verse 19. Now, it's important to see that the, the Scriptures tell us that he was a just man. Look at verse 19 again. Her husband, remember they're only engaged, but that's the language used, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, decides to divorce her. Uh, when Matthew calls Joseph a just man, it means that he is one who loves and seeks to apply God's law to his life in every way. He's living, in other words, to honor God in all the things that he does, even in this relationship with his young wife, Mary. And so he seeks to divorce her quietly that she wouldn't be put to shame. I think there's two things worth noting uh, from this part of the text. Number one, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph is engaged to be married to this lady, young gal, and he finds out that she's pregnant, and he knows it's not his. Okay, at least 50% of true crime TV shows are based on this scenario. Joseph had, by all human standards, every right to be furious. Every right to be angry, justly angry. Every legal right to put her to open shame in front of the whole town. And look how he responds. He wants to treat her with honor. He wants to save her from public scrutiny and shame. Rather than ruining her reputation, in spite of the pain that he must have felt, he wanted to treat her with dignity. And we would do well, I think, to learn from Joseph's example don't you think? When we get into simple arguments with our spouses or our friends or our classmates or significant others, we often try to tear them down, either to our other friends who will listen to us or to a counselor we might get to first or to their own face. We ridicule and mock and berate and abuse one another with our words. We dig up old sins and exaggerate new ones just to remain angry. Yet Joseph had a legitimate reason to come down hard on Mary, didn't he? But rather, he chooses to treat her with honor, and Matthew calls him a just man for it. Isn't that striking? Are you a just man or woman in conflict? When you find yourself on the opposite end of the barrel of the one that you love or work with or are associated with, do you immediately rise up in anger to defend yourself and to tear them down? Or do you remember, perhaps as Joseph seems to here in this text, that they are an image bearer of God in spite of their sin against you? And if you're talking about disagreement or conflict with a Christian, what does the gospel say about them? 
Well, the gospel says that Jesus has already forgiven them for every sin they've ever committed, even the one that you're mad about right now. Are you a just man or woman or boy or girl in conflict like Joseph was? He's a just man. I think it's very important to think about for a moment, at least, as we look at this text. The second thing I want us to see is that there is a legitimate context for divorce here. Now, I know this text is not about divorce and remarriage. We'll get there when we get to Matthew chapter 5. But do notice it is in the text, albeit in passing, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph thought Mary had been sexually unfaithful to him. And being just, don't miss that, in his exercise of righteousness and justice according to God's law, he sought to divorce her, to put her away quietly because the relationship had been broken. The covenant had been damaged. And he knew there was a legitimate occasion for ending their marriage because of sexual immorality, which we'll come back to in Matthew chapter 5. So Joseph puts it in his mind to divorce Mary uh, because of what uh, appears to be unfaithfulness. Now we're getting to the fact that this is a divinely designed uh, situation, a divinely directed origin story. But in Joseph's mind, as of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, he's considering these things. He doesn't know that. Now, I wonder if you're familiar with the uh, Jewish marriage practices in the turn of the millennium when, when Jesus was born, if you know how much work went into the wedding day. It was really quite an ordeal. In Jewish tradition, a man would become engaged or betrothed to a woman. He would go to her parents and arrange a bride price and then pay it. At that point, they're legally married, husband and wife, though yet not consummated in their marriage. And so he then, at that point, would go back to his father's house where he would live. Young people, don't, don't make too much of that. Uh, in Joseph's day and age, he would have worked in the trade that his father worked in. And so irrespective of how old he was, he probably would have stayed at home. And even if he had already been married, he would have just lived in an adjacent space to where his family was from, which is why if you go to Israel now even, you see so many family units just building off the side of one another's homes in these little communities. It's actually very wonderful. There's a, a deep relationship intergenerationally in this, uh, in this setting. So he would then leave his wife, his new wife, with her parents at her house, He would go back to his father's house where he lived, and he would begin building a place for him and his new bride to live on the day of consummation. So he would go back to mom and dad's, he would knock a big hole in the wall, and begin building a new space on the other side of that hole to connect their houses together, building a place for him and his wife. And then once that was completed, she's eagerly waiting. She and all her girlfriends are getting ready for the day of consummation. They're preparing her her dress and the clothes she'll wear. And she's bathing and preparing for the wedding. And he's excited. She doesn't know when it's going to happen. He's working and sweating and getting the place ready. And one day, it's done. The house is ready. And the husband, at that point, grabs all of his friends hires singers and trumpeteers 
and marches through the city with the sound of festal celebration and trumpets blasting to walk across town to the home of his bride, take her hand from her father, and go back to the new place that he's built for her, at which place they'll celebrate with a wedding feast with all of his family and friends and then consummate their marriage in their new home. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? Of course, that's not our practice, but it seems to be what Jesus is referring to in John 14, doesn't it? Listen to what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Do you hear the Jewish wedding tradition in the words of Jesus that he has betrothed himself to us and paid the bride price of his blood? And he goes now to his father's house where there are many rooms and he's preparing a room for us to dwell with him forever. And when it's done, we know not the day or hour He'll return marching through the heavens with angels singing and trumpets blasting to take us by the hand and lead us to our heavenly home where we'll celebrate at the wedding feast of the Lamb, our wedding feast, and then the consummation of our loving relationship with Christ will result in worship for all eternity. That's what Joseph was waiting for with Mary, and that's what we have to look forward to at Christ's return. We're betrothed to Jesus, and he's coming back to get us. Well, Joseph is wrong. He has heard that Mary was unfaithful, and so he resolves to put her away so as to not shame her. But he's wrong. Mary wasn't unfaithful because this child had a divine origin. His conception was divinely directed. Indeed, it's by the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary we confess that Jesus was born. Both of these things which we say in our Apostles and Nicene Creed are terribly important. By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, He is the impregnating source, the creative agent of Jesus' birth. And of the Virgin Mary, she was a virgin at the time of Jesus' birth. It tells us that that uh, she was the virgin who gave birth, and when uh, Joseph took her, he knew her not. That's a statement about the consummation of their marriage in verse 25. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. She was a virgin at the consummation or at the conception of Jesus and a virgin at the birth of Jesus. Jesus was no mere man, not descended from Adam by ordinary generations, as the catechism says. He was from somewhere else, from a divine origin, from God, from heaven. As the second person of the triune Godhead, he came down and was made man for us and for our salvation. And his being made man involved the overshadowing power and presence of the Holy Spirit working in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now this goes against everything we know about procreation, doesn't it? It goes against everything science tells us, everything experience tells us, everything history tells us. Virgins don't get pregnant. And this is one of the big, biggest stumbling blocks for those who hear about Christianity and the birth of Jesus, isn't it? But we must remember that just because this seems out of the ordinary doesn't mean that it's untrue or impossible. 
We have to remember that the very God who overshadows Mary that she might become pregnant is the same God who spoke into nothing and created the entire universe. Nothing is impossible with him. He causes mountains to quake. He causes water to stop up and rise up in a heap and the sun to stand still. And this Jesus who's about to be born, he'll cause disease to leave people, leprosy to disappear, limbs to grow back, and death to flee from his presence. A virgin birth isn't really that hard for God, is it? He's the one who created the universe, and so when he operates within his universe, whatever he does within his universe makes sense and is reasonable. Well, Matthew ultimately wants us to know that there's no sin involved in the birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the creative agent, the one by whom Mary finds herself with child. There was no other man, and it wasn't Joseph. The virgin birth is a totally reasonable explanation for the birth of Jesus when we consider the God who sent his son into the world. It's as reasonable as giving life to dead sinners, isn't it? It's as reasonable as forgiveness being offered to wicked men and women like you and me. It's as reasonable as eternal life being available for those who deserve eternal death. Well, Jesus' origin, his genesis, is divinely directed and acted out. His origin, as we learned last week, is of the line of Abraham and of David and from heaven by the Holy Spirit. And this Messiah, he's called the Christ here in verse 18, not only comes from heaven, but was prophetically promised long ago. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. The angel has spoken to Joseph and says a number of important things, which we'll come back to in a moment. And then in verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew frames this whole birth account, uh, not just the, the fact, or excuse me, the way that it came to pass, but that it comes to pass as a fulfillment of God's promises. Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. And while there's a lot going on here, there's a couple things that I want to point out for us as we consider what's being shown to us about Jesus. At the very least, we see that Matthew understands this moment in time, this birth of Christ the Messiah, to be the climax of redemptive history. All of the promises of the Old Testament that the Jewish people, that the world was waiting to see fulfilled, are being fulfilled in the birth of this little baby called Jesus. This is the pinnacle of redemptive history, the great fulfillment of God's covenant promises, and not only the ones that he quotes in this text. Of course, Isaiah is principally in view, this virgin bearing a son and being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But let's think about a couple other texts in Scripture. Genesis 17:7, which you may have heard me refer to before as the core of the covenant, says this, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, to Abraham, and to your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God has made promises from the beginning of his dealings with his people to be their God, to be God to them. And as we're learning in our study of Exodus in the morning worship services, that includes enslavement in Egypt, this is part of his promise and his plan, and subsequent redemption from Egypt, right? And we know that the people of Israel leave the land of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, and come to Mount Sinai, where in joyful worship and thankfulness for all God has done, they build an idol. Turn to Exodus 32. In response to God's goodness and salvation, the people build an idol and worship it and sacrifice to it, and God says, good, I'm done with them, I'm going to kill them all, Moses, it's me and you now, we're starting over. But Moses pleads on behalf of the people of Israel, and he reminds God of his covenant. He reminds God of the promises that he had made to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so the Lord relents of the disaster that he was about to bring on the people of Israel. We come to chapter 33, and God says, okay, it's time to go now. I'd like you all to get up from here, depart, you and the people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, and take them to the land I'm going to send you to. And I'll send an angel with you, but I will not go with you lest I consume you on the way because you're a stiff-necked people. 33 verse 3. That's terrible news. That's really bad news for Moses and for the Israelites. And Moses knows it. He wants nothing to do with this deal. He wants nothing to do with a relationship with God that doesn't include the presence of God with him. And neither should we. We want God with us because he's promised to be with us. And so Moses intercedes and says to the Lord in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He pleads with the Lord to know him more. This is an expression of fearing the Lord and of trusting in the promises he made and of total dependence on the Lord. And what does God say in verse 14? And he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you my rest. Do you hear that? What's God's promise to his people in fulfillment of his covenant to be their God? It's his presence. It's his presence, isn't it? God promises his people his presence. And when Isaiah prophesies and the angel reminds Joseph and Matthew draws our attention to it, he says all of this, this birth, this conception, this lineage that we looked at earlier in the chapter, all the backstory and context, it all points to one thing, God's promise to be with us. That's why it's a prophetically promised origin story because we've been waiting for it since the beginning john says this in jesus uh, incarnation account in john 1 verse 14 it tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth to dwell among us 
the promise of the dwelling of God, specifically in Isaiah chapter 7, by way of the birth of a virgin mother. But what we know from reading texts that exist from this day and age, uh, from the, this time around which Jesus was born, a virgin birth was on almost no one, in fact, no one's radar. People were waiting for the son of David. People were waiting for the promised seed of Abraham, but nobody was thinking about a virgin birth. And there are a few words, I think, in here that we need to think about to help us see that while not front and center in prophetic history, in other words, this wasn't really on the radar of the Jewish people, I I imagine that when the earliest readers of this text caught a view of Isaiah 7, they went, whoa, that's this? Uh, That was a promise made to Ahaz about God being with him in battle against his enemies. How is this about the Messiah? I want us to see that this is exactly what God had planned to do all along. This is not Matthew abusing his Old Testament scriptures. First of all, look in verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill. This word fulfill is used in Matthew 10 times to describe God keeping His old covenant promises through Jesus Christ. And many of those times, they're surprising promises, not the ones that you would expect. And yet, Matthew understands Jesus as God's intentional plan to fulfill promises that He had made to the world. He is the final answer to all that God has promised. He's a new temple. He's the seed of the woman. He's the child of David. He's the blessed offspring of Abraham. He's even the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All this is to fulfill promises that were made. So this is not some aside event, or Matthew is not uh, grasping at straws here in order to connect his Old Testament to his new. He's telling us the, the language of fulfilled here is intentionally flagging us down and saying, look at this, this is part of God's redemptive plan, and you need to understand why. Jesus fulfills everything that God has promised. He is the climax of redemptive history. And all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Him. There's another word in here that's also worth noticing. Behold. Behold, in verse 20, as Joseph was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Verse 23, uh, after saying this is what was spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. This word behold uh, is, a, is a device used to emphasize a critical aspect of the narrative, a special moment in the story. Usually this word in Hebrew is translated, look. Matthew wants you to stop for a second and pay attention. Okay, this makes sense. Yep, she's with child. Yep, uh, she hasn't come together with Joseph yet. Yep, he wants to divorce her. Yep, but look, an angel comes. Because God wants Joseph to know his plan. And what did the angel tell him? That the baby is from God. And what's this a promise fulfilling? Look, it's the one that Isaiah made hundreds of years ago. And Matthew's drawing our attention to these key aspects of the story of Jesus' origin. He wants us to know explicitly that everything is happening just the way God planned it. Just the way God promised it. Don't miss this also in verse 22. It's not just that the prophet spoke. That should be enough for us. 
Peter tells us that prophets spoke as the Holy Spirit carried them along. We confess in our Nicene Creed that we believe in the Holy Spirit who spoke by the prophets. But what does Matthew say in verse 22? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. This virgin birth idea was not the imaginings of an old man in Israel hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It isn't the imaginings of a former tax collector, reformed disciple of Jesus Christ, writing his uh, last will and testament to his children that they might know what he experienced, and he throws in this virgin birth story. It was the word of the Lord promised to his people. Promised by God. The origin of Jesus, divinely directed, he came straight from heaven by the Holy Spirit to the virgin womb of Mary. The origin of Jesus, it was promised from long, long, long ago in many different ways, explicitly, directly, particularly concerning the nature of his birth, his person, and his work. Jesus came from heaven. He had been promised. And now we see, lastly, as we look at this text, that his origin is salvifically significant. In other words, we might say that there has been a promise fulfilled, and now there is a promise being made. Look at verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's shocking. If we have any right sense of who we really are, that statement is shocking. God with us? God? God? The creator of everything? The one whose holiness is so great that the angels who were created to be in his presence can't even look at him? God? Us? The ones who are so sinful that not only is our nature tarnished with sin, but our actions are sinful? We are sinners and we do sin. We do sin because we're sinners and we're sinners because we sin. The whole person, mind, body, and soul, and strength is corrupted by sin in its natural state in Adam. Totally depraved, totally unable to save ourselves. God with us? It should shock us. How can God dwell with sinful man? Well, the answer is simple. He can't. He can't. God can't dwell with sinful man. It's why the entire tabernacle and temple system had so many different courts, didn't it? 
Uh, some people, the regular people, could get to the outside of it and they could look at its beauty from the outside. Some of the special people got to go inside the outside part and kind of uh, experience a little bit of the closeness and get to see some of the accoutrements of the tabernacle or temple. And some of the even more special people got to go inside and see that there were multiple parts on the inside. And then only one person, once a year, after much ceremonial cleansing and sacrifices and tying bells to his feet and a rope around his ankle, got to go to the inside part and if he did anything wrong he was killed how can god dwell among sinful people he can't can you imagine if emmanuel meant that every time we wanted to pray or come to worship or experience the blessing of god's presence we had to go through what aaron went through once a year to go into the holy of holies that most holy place that most holy place called the Shekan, which is where we get the word Shekinah, where the glory of God dwelled, where God dwelled among his people, hidden behind curtains and a tent and a brick-and-mortar building. Can you imagine a relationship with God like that? How can God dwell with us? How can it be that he can dwell unmediated with sinful men? How can Matthew say that this is the fulfillment of the promise, it's good news for us, that we should rejoice at the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If we were smart, the name Emmanuel would make us respond like the Israelites in the wilderness who said, tell him to stop talking. If we hear his voice again, we're going to die. The answer to the dilemma of God with us is in his name. The answer to the dilemma of God with us is right here in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's salvation. That enables us to be in the presence of God. That enables him to dwell with us. God is able to dwell with us because Jesus has washed us in his blood, making our hearts the dwelling place of the living God forever. Our Savior's name means that God can now dwell with us in a new way. Without all the temple and tabernacle regalia and the curtains which have been torn in two at his death. Because Jesus was born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary in fulfillment of God's promise, we can now experience the promise, the answer, the name Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling in us, him with us, and we with him forever. And Matthew loves this theme. Think of how he ends the book. Don't miss this. He says, behold, he wants to get your attention again. I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Even after this little baby was born and grew and died and came back to life before he went away, he said, I'm not done being Emmanuel. I'm still with you. I'm always with you because I'm God with my people. Isn't that amazing? That's the significance of Jesus. That's the origin of his coming. Do you have God with you? 
Is he your God? Are you his child? Perhaps the virgin birth has offended you. Perhaps his name Jesus has offended you because it implies your need for salvation outside of yourself. Look at this beautiful account of his origin. He came from heaven. Of course a virgin birth is not too much for him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Of course his story is going to have a supernatural flavor to it. He was promised from thousands of years before his birth. Nobody else in history can claim that. And because God made covenant promises about this, this Savior, this Messiah, they must be kept, and we can be sure that He will keep them. It's in His nature to keep His promises to us. And now because of His blood, we've been saved from our sins. And more than the promise of God dwelling on top of a mountain, more than the promise of God dwelling in a tent or in a brick-and-mortar building that we can never see, we have the promise of God by His Spirit dwelling in us forever. Forever. And He's coming back to take us to His heavenly home that we might celebrate our marriage to our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This God's promise to you this evening. If you come to Jesus in faith, asking for forgiveness of your sins, you will have God with you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tremendous genesis of Jesus Christ. From his origin in heaven to his prophetic fulfillment of promise to his salvific significance, saving us from our sins that you might dwell with us, we pray that we might apprehend afresh this evening the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In whose name we pray. Amen.